Good evening, everyone, or good afternoon, I should say, and uh, good to see you here. Um, back in 2010, I was uh, on a plane headed towards uh, the Evangelical Theological Society's annual meeting, and I had the good fortune of uh, being seated next to Dr. Walter Kaiser. And uh, Dr. Kaiser and I were talking about this and that, uh, of course, distinguished Old Testament professor, well-known in, in uh, evangelical circles. And he said something then. He said that, um, he predicted, he said, if our Lord tarries, he said, by the middle of the decade, uh, 2015, he said, I expect that uh, 50% of the members of ETS will be theistic evolutionists. And, uh, you know, at that time, I thought that was quite a remarkable thing uh, for uh, Dr. Kaiser to say. Um, and so we got to talking about why that would be so. Um, I don't know. I, I can't give any, any numbers. Uh, I, all I can do is give my perception. I don't know what the percentage of the members of ETS would affirm or would subscribe to theistic evolution, but I would have to say that uh, he, he was definitely on to something that is a definite trend. Um, and this has turned into a very serious issue. In fact, Carl Truman, uh, let me just give a brief quote, the historicity of Adam is the biggest doctrinal issue facing this generation. Um, it certainly is a big issue, uh, and uh, it's an overwhelming issue. I, I will just admit right up front how intimidated I am uh, by the topic and by the task of presenting this to you. Back whenever Dr. Rooker and I were working on the 40 Questions book, back in 2011, uh, as we were working on it, I just decided, you know, on Amazon.com to do to type in the word uh, creation to see how many books would come up, and it'll give you an idea of, you know, just just a crude search like that. I came up with 31,000 books, uh, so I typed in the word evolution, and came up with 61,000 books, and so just. You know, doing that on Amazon.com, you come up with nearly 100,000 books. And so uh, the, the possibility of getting an, a, a grasp on this topic is, is pretty overwhelming. However, that was in 2011. So last week, you know, five years later, 2016, I thought I would do it again. So I typed in the word creation, and instead of 31,000 uh, five years ago, it's 61,000 books uh, in 2016. Uh, and when I typed in the word evolution, it's uh, instead of 61,000 results, it's 134,000. So it isn't just that the, the subject is too big for anyone to uh, really become an expert on it, uh, it is that the rate of growth is bigger than anyone can get a handle on it. So uh, just the size of the issue uh, makes things difficult. And this is uh, an area, as uh, uh, Dr. Quarles just mentioned, in which um, our specializations uh, are, are much more of a hindrance than they are a help. And so it has been very interesting uh, to be, as director of the Bush Center, to have the opportunity to be uh, sitting in on dialogues in which even those of the same perspective, whether it's young earth or old earth or evolutionary creationist, uh, to hear the different ones, whether it's uh, the, those of the scientific community or those of the biblical studies community or philosophy or theology, uh, and then to have those from the different uh, perspectives all in the same room. And, and, and you begin to realize real quick that things that seem to be quite reasonable to you in your area of specialization is quite problematic 
uh, to some who are outside uh, your area of discipline. And that seems to be going on uh, quite a bit in this discussion. And uh, like I said, uh, Adam has been getting a lot of attention. Uh, You know, just look at some of the books that have come out just recently. Of course, Peter Enns, Carl Guyberson, some of the early members of Biologos published The Evolution of Adam or Guyberson's book, Saving the Original Sinner. Um, Then you have those that would be more of an old earth creationist or ID kind of people like... um, uh, Fuzz Rana, who was Adam, or Jack Collins, did Adam and Eve really exist? Uh, and then we have a book that we're going to look at uh, here in just a little bit, The Lost World of Adam and Eve by John Collins, uh, with, the con- with contributions from uh, N.T. Wright. And then you have those uh, that uh, argue very much a, a biblical theological argument for a historical Adam, such as God, Adam, and You, with Phillips as the editor. Uh, one book I'm going to look at uh, here in just a little bit is Adam, the Fall, and the Original Sin, with Hans uh, Madumi and Michael Reeves. Uh, and then you have uh, the various books that uh, deal with the question from a historical perspective. And I'm now thinking of someone like David Livingstone, his book, Adam's Ancestors. Uh, and then another one would be uh, William uh, Van Dudevard, uh, his book, uh, The Quest for the Historical Adam. And, uh, to, you know, you got to do anything that's anything is controversial. You have to have the multi-view books. Uh, and so Zondervan has done the multi-view four views on the historical Adam. So what's going on? Why all of the attention now? What, what, is, uh, what is creating all of the buzz? Uh, and in a word, it's genetics. Uh, the Human Genome Project is uh, now, uh, you see that's Dr. Francis Collins uh, there. Uh, he was the head of the Human Genome Project, uh, which was completed in the late 1990s, uh, around 2000. Even if... Um, just but the project by itself would have would have created quite a a change or quite it would have pushed the discussion in the direction that it's going now but um uh, Dr. Collins is an evangelical Christian. Uh, in fact, uh, Dr. Collins came to faith in Christ here in the uh, Raleigh-Durham area. He, he came to faith in Christ while he was in residency uh, at UNC Chapel Hill. And so uh, he is someone who is a strong and open evangelical Christian, uh, expresses his faith very clearly. Uh, and so he was the head of the Human Genome Project. He then wrote the book, The Language of God, uh, in which he argued for the evangelical faith and uh, for what he for theistic evolution, or as most of them would prefer to be called, evolutionary creationist. Uh, and from that book, he then uh, started the organization Biologos. And so uh, because of these things, uh, it is quite a conversation at this time. So what has genetics done? Uh, well, there are certain things uh, that certain findings that we see in the in the field of genetics that would seem to support um, uh, the traditional understanding of Adam and Eve. Uh, let me just give a couple of them, and then I'm going to talk about some of the thing, findings that seem to be a challenge. Uh, first, uh, one of the things that uh, the Human Genome Project has demonstrated: there are no races plural. Uh, we're simply one human race. The, uh, the genetic diversity uh, is just simply not there. Uh, we, we are all, uh, in fact, there's more diversity uh, within what we call a race uh, 
than there is many times between races. And so you could find yourself, genetically speaking, uh, have more in common with someone who has different color skin uh, than someone who has the same color, color skin that you have. Uh, and so it is, um, skin color is a trivial matter, genetically speaking, so it makes no sense to talk about races plural, based, especially based on skin color. You might as well uh, base races on eye color or, or hair color. It just, uh, there's only one race. And the reason why there's only one race is because we can trace uh, our origin back to a common woman and a common man. Uh, so we do have what they would call a mitochondrial Eve and uh, Y chromosome Adam, each of those labels speaking about the methodology by which they arrived at that conclusion. So uh, these findings uh, would, would seem to be supportive of the idea uh, that we all come from Adam and Eve. And so these would be the findings in support. However, there are many of the findings that are challenging. Uh, and you say, well, what are they? Well, uh, first, um, it looks like uh, uh, mitochondrial Eve and why Adam... The dates don't fit very well for any kind of, uh, of, of the typical young earth uh, perspective. Uh, it, they go back at least 50,000 years and, and perhaps much, much further. Uh, and so um, the dates don't work well very easily uh, in, in what uh, many have as their typical paradigm. Second, uh, common ancestry is not the same thing as original ancestors. In other words, being able uh, to say that we all come from the same woman uh, or that we all have a woman in common in our background, our ancestry, or that we have a man uh, that is a common father, number one, it doesn't mean that they, you know, that this was a man and woman married to each other, uh, nor does it mean uh, that they were the only two. Uh, it's simply, you know, you think about it, if we were to check on our family tree in Ancestry.com and we were to find out, what do you know? Uh, 300 years ago, everyone in this room, we all have a common ancestor. It doesn't mean that's the only man and woman uh, in the world. Uh, so common ancestry does not mean the same as original ancestor. Uh, and also, it seems that humanity began in Africa rather than Mesopotamia. It seems to be an out-of-Africa scenario uh, that works better uh, than uh, is something being in, in, in uh, an A&E. And also, uh, this seems to be uh, another challenge. Rather than an original couple, it appears the current discoveries seem to point to an original tribe or clan. Uh, there does seem to be uh, a bottleneck uh, about where, wherever it was, 50 to 100,000 years ago. Uh, it appears that, uh, that there was this one small group, uh, one tribe, maybe of some several hundred, maybe of a thousand, uh, that from them everyone uh, descended. Uh, what is the scenarios for that? Uh, it depends on which way you, you, un which way you interpret the evidence. So, um, but the one thing that it doesn't seem to do very easily at this point is to be able to focus down to just simply uh, two people, Adam and Eve. And so that seems to be a challenge uh, to our traditional understanding of the original couple. So how have evangelicals approached uh, or uh, responded to this evidence? Well, there's two positions. And one of them is simply, well, there was no Adam, but it doesn't really matter. 
Uh, and this would be uh, the approach that some are taking. Others are taking, no, this is a gospel issue. Uh, the historicity of Adam uh, must be affirmed. So I'm going to briefly go over those two, and then I'm going to talk about three who are attempting to have, as I say, they're trying to split the atom. Ha ha. Uh, and so uh, is, what about those who would say there was no atom, but it doesn't matter? Someone like Dennis Lamoureux, uh, who would argue to conclude, uh, and, and these are all evangelicals uh, that I am working with. This is an evangelical conversation uh, that I am surveying. Uh, to conclude, there was no sin-death problem. Adam never existed, and consequently sin did not enter the world through him. Nor then did physical death arise as a divine judgment for his transgression, because once again, Adam never existed. And, and Lamro would be uh, a, a good representation. Uh, Amaro, uh, Peter Enns, uh, Carl Guyberson uh, would be the three that I'm going to look at. Uh, well, they would argue that it's okay for us to understand uh, Adam simply in a representational way uh, rather than uh, in some way of understanding him is, as in a literal way. But I, I think that, and like I said, I, I'm going to go ahead and tip my cards. I'm, I'm going to very much argue for the historicity of Adam, and so I'm just going to admit right up front uh, that I'm unpersuaded by their assurances that, that uh, this is going to have very little impact on us theologically. And so understand what I'm getting ready to present next is from, from that perspective. For example, uh, I do think uh, that whenever you look at what they write, it does impact theology proper. Uh, in other words, the way one understands the doctrine of God is affected by uh, if we do not have a historical fall or a historical atom, then, we, then we, it's difficult to come up with something that resembles uh, any kind of historical fall. And if there is um, uh, no historical fall in our discussion of the great biblical narrative, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, if you take out item number two, then we do have the difficulty... Uh, of, of um, it would seem that evil is a part of the original creation. And if evil is a part of the original creation, I don't see how this does not affect our understanding of God. Uh, we, we run the risk of something that, that smacks of the old Gnostic heresy in which uh, the Gnostics understood the God of the Old Testament uh, to be the one who created, but he's not the father of the New Testament, uh, and that Jesus came to save us from the creative efforts of the God of the Old Testament. Uh, that, that's problematic. I think that, that uh, removing any kind of historical fault does impact theology proper. Um, now, to Guyberson and Lamoureux's credit, uh, they do understand this dilemma, and they do try to have some idea of a fall... Um, even though they deny the historicity of Adam and the historicity of an actual fall, they try to say that it points to something real. But it is a problem. Second, it affects uh, our understanding of biblical authority. Uh, I think it affects uh, any kind of notion of inerrancy is affected. Guyberson uh, is quite open about this. Guyberson calls himself uh, a former evangelical and a traditionalist. In traditionalist, he is putting himself in between inerrantist uh, and liberals, uh, I think that for, uh, th for those of us in a Southern Baptist context, we would understand traditionalists. I think he means something that many times we, 
Southern Baptists have described themselves as moderates. And so he's quite uh, clear about it. He says, traditionalists have forever understood that Christianity does not need an inerrant Bible any more than the United States needs an inerrant constitution. So I, I think that we do understand uh, that it affects inerrancy. I think it dis- affects our understanding of infallibility. Peter Inns would say, yes, uh, Paul did believe in a historical Adam, but Paul was simply wrong. Uh, but his error doesn't really affect our Christology, so therefore it doesn't really matter. I do think that uh, our understanding of Scripture is affected by this approach. It impacts theological method. Um, and again, Inns is quite clear uh, about what this does to our theological method, and I'll let Inns make his point, where he says, a true rapprochement uh, between evolution and Christianity requires a, th- a synthesis. Not simply adding evolution to existing theological formulations, the very nature of what sin is and why people die is turned on its head. Some characteristics that Christians have thought of as sinful, for example, in an evolutionary scheme, the aggression and dominance associated with survival of the fittest and sexual promiscuity to perpetuate one's gene pool are understood as means of ensuring survival. Likewise, death is not the enemy to be defeated. Death may hurt, but it is evolution's ally. So therefore, evolution is not an add-on to Christianity. It demands synthesis. Such a synthesis requires a willingness to rethink one's own convictions in the light of new data, and that is typically a very hard thing to do. Uh, So ends, it appears to me, is not calling for a Christian understanding of evolution. He seems to be calling for an evolutionary understanding of Christianity, uh, and this is problematic. Um, I think that... uh, I think that uh, that abandoning a historical atom does affect one's soteriology. Uh, and I think that here, Guyberson is very clear, um, if we abandon a historical atom, it will entail abandoning or at least significantly retooling our understanding of uh, original sin uh, and the effects of the fall. Uh, but uh, there uh, we have where Guyberson says there was no original sin, and there was, uh, there is no original sin, and there was no original sinner. And Guyberson's um, uh, suggestion is that we look at rehabilitating Pelagius. Uh, and so, so I think that uh, that kind. So I, I guess my point that I'm making here is, is that uh, despite their assurances that abandoning the historicity of Adam will not affect us theologically, I would argue, yeah, it it, it seems to me that this this does have a real significance, which is why you do have those who are going to affirm a historical Adam as a gospel issue, but I have to admit right up front, I'm not very happy with them either. Uh, you know, this, this is a very good book. I recommend it. Uh, Adam, the Fall and Original Sin by, uh, by Hans Madumi uh, and uh, Reeves. Uh, this, Michael Reeves, it has a lot of strengths. Let me just go ahead and give them. Uh, it does a very good job biblically and theologically. Uh, it has 15 authors who do a very good job of demonstrating that there are really important reasons for affirming the historicity of the original couple. Uh, The biblical arguments, uh, you think about it, uh, the significant Old Testament passages demonstrating uh, that though Adam is not referred to or talked about much in the remainder of the Old Testament, uh, 
the effects of Adam's, uh, uh, what he has done, the idea that we are in a fallen uh, uh, realm, that permeates all of the Old Testament and the New Testament clearly. Uh, Adam, like I said, is more central to Old Testament theology than some that ends and others are willing to admit. Then you have just the simple matter of things like the genealogies, uh, you know, from Adam to Abraham in Genesis 5 and then in Genesis 11. Uh, then you, again you have uh, Adam to Israel in 1 Chronicles 1, uh, chapters 1 through 9. And then we have uh, Luke uh, taking, uh, going backwards from Jesus all the way back to Adam in Luke chapter 3. And then you have the many statements by Jesus and Paul, whether it's Jesus in Matthew 19 or Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 2. Uh, they use the events in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to make a point at a number of times. And in each instance, it appears that uh, they understood Genesis, the Genesis account to be historical. So they make a they make some very good biblical arguments. They make very good historical arguments demonstrating the church has universally affirmed the historicity of Adam and Eve. Uh, and uh, then they make some very good theological arguments saying that the authority of Scripture is, uh, is a matter uh, of concern here. Regardless of whether one is liberal or conservative, there is universal agreement that Paul believed that Adam was a real person. Uh, they may not think that Paul was right in thinking that, but there is universal agreement among New Testament scholars that Paul was not seeing uh, uh, Adam merely as a symbolic or representative figure, but that he was using someone that he understood to be historical. And then another good thing about the book is that they, the last section, they tackle the difficult question of original sin uh, with mixed results, in my opinion. Um, however, there are three jarring problems to the book. Uh, and and these, these, are, these are going to just highlight where, where the trouble is. Okay, it's got 15 chapters by 15 authors, and the book is about biblical, theological, and scientific um, explorations of, or affirmations of the historicity of Adam. Well, out of the 15 chapters, only one deals with scientific issues. So, you know, so in fact, you have where many of the other authors will point back to chapter 3, which actually is written, I don't know who the author is because he wrote under a pseudonym. Uh, and so th that's, that's problematic. And it doesn't deal with the real issue at hand. Uh, it only deals with the fossil evidence uh, from a, of, of, of paleontology. Uh, and so the field of genetics, which is the real elephant in the room, uh, is completely ignored. Uh, and the third problem is uh, you have both old earth creationists and young earth creationists contributing, uh, and some of the young earth creationists in their contributions making very strong, adamant uh, affirmations that, that, that a historical Adam requires uh, a, a young earth interpretation. Uh, and, the, and then they would point, but now I'm not going to deal with the scientific issues because that will be dealt with in chapter 3. Well, when we get to chapter 3, uh, he argues that all that we understand to be some type of homo sapien or anything related, like uh, Neanderthal or the Cro-Magon, he says all of these have uh, Adam as their common ancestor. So he places Adam uh, 1.8 million years ago, uh, which is remarkable even among old earth creationists. 
that they would argue that Adam uh, lived. You know, so when you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you're reading something that occurred uh, over, well, nearly 2 million years ago. And so, uh, like I said, um, even among old earth creationists, I, I find that uh, a difficult um, uh, thesis to, be, uh, to find among any of the others. So th- that's a dilemma. Uh, so, like I said, uh, well, there are those uh, that are trying, as I said, to affirm a high view of Scripture and a historical Adam uh, and deal with uh, the scientific evidence as given. Uh, three of these uh, are Fuzz Rana, who is with the organization Reasons to Believe, uh, Jack Collins, who teaches at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, uh, and John Walton, who teaches at Wheaton College. Um, and uh, what I, I'm going to, like I said, tip my hand again. I find myself more comfortable with what John Collins is doing uh, than uh, with Rana or with Walton. But I'm going to spend most of the time with Walton because Walton seems to be the man of the hour uh, in, in this, this conversation. So, Fuzz Rana, let's take a look at, at what he has argued uh, in his book, Who Was Adam? He is taking a strictly concordance approach. In other words, he's trying to reconcile the science with his understanding of Genesis. uh, And he's going to argue uh, almost explicitly a scientific case. Very little is dealt uh, with. He he spends very little attention with the biblical record. Uh, And he's a biochemist. Uh, That's not too surprising that he would do that. What does he argue? He argues that you know, I'll just go through them briefly. Adam is, uh, humanity is traceable back to one man and one woman, uh, mitochondrial uh, Eve, uh, Y, Adam. Uh, humanity's early population was relatively small, which we've already said. Uh, that humanity originated in a single location in or near the Middle East. And here's where he gets really creative with the boundaries of, of um of Eden, and he argues that the original Eden uh, could understood to have extended over into Egypt. Uh, and uh, so he's going to argue that it could be that the Garden of Eden was actually in Africa, and that way he has the out of Africa scenario answered. Uh, then he argues that uh, humanity's origin occurred recently, recently in old earth terms. In other words, you have uh, the hominids from 1.8 million years, uh, what he's going to, or what we would we'd kind of say looks to be uh, something that appears to be human. Uh, but he's going to argue that only about 50 to 75,000 years ago do we have what we'd call human beings uh, on the scene. Uh, and he's going to say that, that when they arrived on the scene, uh, they then spread around the world from and near the Middle East. And he's going to say the indication that God, and he's going to argue for special creation of Adam. In other words, a de novo, a special creative work of Adam. And he's going to say that the indication that that happened is the, the archaeological explosion that we see, uh, or the explosion of, of human artifacts in the archaeological record, uh, is what he's going to argue. So he says, I see this sociocultural Big Bang as a signature for God's intervention, denoting the creation of the first humans, creatures that uniquely bear God's image, uh, and so he's going to see that that sudden explosion of culture as an indication that God created humans. Uh, now, humans, as God created them, shared a anatomical, physical, biochemical, and genetic similarity with the extent extinct hominids, great apes and other animals. But he says 
The fact that they shared these commonalities did not mean that they had a common ancestor, but rather common design. And that's the next quote. Together, these verses indicate, and he's talking about uh, Genesis 2, indicate that both man and animals were fashioned by the Creator from the same substance and design template. It follows, then, that anatomical, physiological, biochemical, and genetic similarities should exist between humans and other animals, including the 99% genetic similarity between humans and chimpanzees. In other words, shared features reflect common design, not common descent. That means that humans, though they are genetically similar and almost identical, They are behaviorally distinct, and that's because they reflect the divine image, so therefore they are not uh, in common with the earlier hominids, great apes, and other animals. So that would be Fuzz Rana's argument. Well, Jack Collins, uh, if if, if Fuzz is a concordist, uh, Jack Collins, I think he would allow me to call him a semi-concordist because he even asked the question, uh, is his approach concordism? And he'd say, well, yes and no. So I think semi-concordism uh, is a reasonable label to put on him. Um, and what he does is he, he builds first the biblical theological arguments, the genealogical arguments, the New Testament arguments, and he addresses the genetic uh, scenario. He does so, uh, I think, very well. And then he concludes with, he says, okay, what now then? How do we stay within the bounds of sound thinking? And he argues four points. Uh, One, he says, whatever criteria, whatever understanding uh, we have of uh, the original couple, he says, the origin of the human race must be understood as something greater than the mere pro, or mere, than greater than merely the product of natural development. In other words, he's going to reject any type of natural uh, uh, selection being the the single engine bringing about uh, human beings. Second, Adam and Eve, he said, must be understood as the headwaters of the human race. Uh, And then third, he would say, we must affirm the historicity of the fall along with its corporate culpability. And then fourth, here's where he's going to acknowledge that at this point, we're not really able to get, genetically speaking, down to an original couple. So he says it isn't, so we, we have to at least explore the possibility that Adam was part of an original clan. And so any type to, uh, uh, to merge evolutionary theory with the historical Adam must somehow preserve the notion of Adam's federal headship. And so what Collins is going to say is that I really want to uphold the idea of the biological origin of the original couple in Adam and Eve, but I may be forced to simply affirm uh, the federal headship. Uh, And that's where Collins leaves it. Well, let me talk about, uh, like I said, who I would argue is the man of the hour, uh, and that would be John Walton. Uh, why, is, why is this? Well, for a number of reasons that I would say, uh, for one thing, just the amount of work that he's published about uh, this issue in the last couple of years. Um, and so um, he is, whether you agree or disagree with his approach, he is uh, at the center now of this dialogue and discussion. And there's a number of reasons for this. One, uh, his approach, he is agnostic, he claims, about the validity of evolutionary theory. In other words, he says, I'm going to leave that up to the geneticists and the scientists to argue that out, whether or not one can affirm common descent. And so he says, I just simply am going to plead, um, this is not my area, and I'm just going to leave it alone. 
Uh, and so even though he is uh, a senior fellow with Biologos, he does not openly and actively affirm uh, evolutionary theory. Second, he does uh, adamantly affirm the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. Uh, so uh, unlike Inns and Guyberson uh, and Lamoureux, he is saying that uh, it is important that we uphold the notion of the inerrancy of Scripture. And third, uh, he is indicative of the shift of emphasis and approach at Biologos. When Biologos started uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, Francis Collins, uh, right after Collins started it, he then went to work in, uh, in, in, in the federal government uh, and had to resign uh, from Biologos. Carl Guyberson was the, then took over uh, head along with uh, Daryl Falk, and Peter Inns was the scholar in residence at Biologos. And so you hear you had uh, at Biologos at that time the leadership uh, denying the historicity of Adam and arguing very strongly that evolutionary theory was going to require us to do that. Uh, so Biologos ha was faced with a dilemma. Uh, in other words, I think if they had continued on that trajectory, uh, I'm, not, I'm pretty sure that, that um, you know, they would have been considered a former evangelical organization. Uh, Guyberson and Inns are gone from Biologos now, and they have been replaced. Uh, uh, Deb Harzma is now the director of Biologos. Jeff Sloss and John Walton uh, are uh, the scholars in residence. Jeff Sloss uh, is a professor of biology. Um, at Westmont, and uh, John Walton is professor of Old Testament. Now, the interesting thing about all three of them is that they are, like I said, Sloss and Harzma uh, are evolutionary creationists. Uh, Walton claims agnosticism on the issue. But they all three uh, want to affirm the historicity of Adam. And so you see a, at least a shift of emphasis and approach in Biologos in which they recognize uh, that for many of us, uh, one cannot simply abandon the historicity of Adam and consider it a trivial issue. So they do not, uh, I think they, they would consider themselves um, a big tent organization in which they still have those who consider uh, the historicity of Adam as an optional uh, matter. But right now their leadership are those who would try, in one way or another, affirm the historicity of Adam. So this is why uh, Walton, is, for, for these reasons, Walton uh, is significant. What Walton is going to argue is what he calls the archetypal view. And that is that Adam is presented in the Bible as an archetype. Now, what does he mean? Here's how he defines Adam as archetype. He said, in the view that I present here, I believe that Adam and Eve were real people who existed in a real past in time and space, but I believe that both in Genesis and in the New Testament, there is more interest in, the, in them as archetypes, notwithstanding their reality. And he says, for example, Abraham is uh, an example of someone else that the Bible uses as an archetype. Uh, Adam, Abraham was a real person uh, in a real past. But the New Testament shows its interest in him as an archetype when it identifies him as the father of all who believe, such as in Romans 4, 11, and 12. When it calls him the father of all who believe, it's not trying to make any kind of genetic connection uh, between Abraham and all of us. And so he would say... Adam should be understood primarily as an archetype. Now, he says archetype, not prototype. 
and he distinguishes. He says, a prototype is the first in a series that serves as a model for subsequent production. It establishes a pattern, but is otherwise unrelated to the other products. In contrast, he says, an archetype serves as a representative of all the other members of the group, thus establishing an inherent relationship. Not merely, and I put that word merely uh, in quotation marks, not merely federal head, though I think he would say that, that there does have to be, there is the biblical notion of Adam as federal head. He says such representation could either be as an archetype, all are embodied in the one and counted as have participated in the acts of one, or as a federal representative in which one is serving as an elect delegate on behalf of the rest. And so he is trying to have, uh, uh, trying to present Adam as primarily uh, as archetype. Now, then what does he do with Genesis 1 and 2? Well, a number of the things that he, he uh, does in his approach to Genesis 1 and 2 are not that controversial, are not that unusual. Um, there are two things that he argues that I do think is, is rather unusual uh, for Old Testament evangelicals. Now, I look out here and there are a number uh, of Old Testament uh, faculty, and, I, and I'm just going to confess right now uh, that you can do this portion of the lecture much better than me. I'm just going to report the news, okay? Uh, and, and you can critique it so much better than I can. I'm just going to present what, uh, what uh, uh, Walton is arguing. So what does he argue? Well, first he argues that Genesis 1 and 2 provides no new scientific revel uh, revelation. And in that, I think that there... I think that's not that controversial. Now, uh, in certain young earth circles, that, that may be. Uh, and I can think of certain old earth uh, creationists that I dearly love and respect. I think the world of Hugh Ross. But Hugh and I are just going to disagree on whether or not um, Genesis 1 and 2 has anything to say about the weak and strong nuclear force, uh, you know, and, 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 and that kind of thing. Uh, but what Walton would argue is that what Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible communicates within a worldview of its original uh, audience. Now, contra to Lamoureux, this doesn't mean, Walton would say, that the biblical authors affirmed error. He would say, I'm talking Walton now, the author of Genesis utilizes the worldview of the A&E without affirming it. By A&E, I mean the ancient Near Eastern uh, context. The accounts, he says, have nothing to say about the age of the earth or the process by which they were made. This means no new scientific information is embedded in the text. And so we do not look at the text for providing to, for us any new scientific uh, revelation. He accepts a literary or theological framework. Uh, this would be something reminiscent of someone like Meredith Klein that sees uh, Genesis 1 2, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, where it talks about being unformed and unfilled. The first three days are the forming, the latter three days are the filling. And so you have that literary or theological framework. Uh, and he is, is okay with that. And again, uh, like I said, I, one can find lots of, of Old Testament faculty that, that would uh, be, that would that affirm that. There's nothing too out of the ordinary about that. Uh, he ac accepts uh, the temple motif. That is, that what you have is God establishing sacred space. And again, I'm thinking of someone like Gregory Beale. Uh, there are plenty of other uh, biblical scholars that would re recognize uh, that some type of temple inauguration uh, in Genesis 1 and 2. And so that, again, would not be that unusual. The idea, uh, you know, that the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple in Jerusalem, these were all pictures and image uh, of, of, of 
Eden, uh, the garden, and uh, the, the cosmos as God's uh, uh, temple. Uh, and so you, you, that, that's not all that unusual either. And then the idea, here's where, the next two things, here's where he is different. And here's what he's going to argue. He's going to argue that Genesis 1 and 2 deal only with functional ordering. Uh, in fact, he would argue that Genesis 1 doesn't say anything about material origins. Now, Walton affirms creatio ex nihilo. He just thinks that Genesis 1 isn't teaching that. In other words, he would argue that the entire Bible teaches creatio ex nihilo, but that's not the topic or the subject of Genesis 1. Uh, in fact, not only does he not see creatio ex nihilo in Genesis 1, he doesn't really see, even see de novo creation. Uh, in other words, he would argue uh, it isn't that God forms something new uh, out of existing materials. He would say that, um, and here's the, the way he would say it, uh, the, the text doesn't deal with material origins at all. Rather, the focus is on establishing order out of disorder by assigning roles. You know, when he names uh, things, he is placing them in their place of duty, uh, and function, and that is all that is being said uh, by, uh, by what is going on in Genesis 1. So Genesis 1 is an account of functional origins, not material origins. And if he says that once, he must say that 50 times. Uh, and so he says, when God establishes functional order, he said, it, it, it is good. This doesn't mean that creation is completed with original perfection, which would go against what our young earth brethren would argue. Uh, for example, he would say, the same description is given to the promised land, that it's good, uh, in Numbers 14.7, even though it's filled with enemies and wicked inhabitants, not to mention wild animals who are predators. So the first thing, uh, you know, these last two points, um, that are, these are where he is innovative and is taking it a step uh, further uh, than the typical evangelical Old Testament uh, professor would go, or scholar would go, and that is the idea that Genesis 1 and 2 is dealing only with functional ordering. The next thing uh, is the idea that Genesis 1 and 2 are sequential rather than parallel. Typically, among um, conservative evangelicals, uh, uh, Old Testament uh, evangelicals, they would argue that, day, uh, that chapter 2 is an elaboration of day 6. Uh, he argues against that. And he's going to argue that uh, Genesis 2 is chronologically subsequent to Genesis 1. Now, what does this mean? Well, he would argue that Genesis 1, then, speaks of creation of humanity in general. In other words, uh, the Adam in Genesis 1 is, let us make humans. And that is what God does. And so what you have in Walton's scenario is that you have pre-Adamites, uh, humans who lived before Adam and Eve, or at least could have existed before Adam and Eve. Uh, and so uh, that would be... Now, I can, one can find others who have argued this. I guess uh, if you want to read more about it, read David Livingstone's book, Adam's Ancestors. Uh, Isala uh, Perari is probably the first one to argue strongly. Uh, he was a, um, um, a French Calvinist during the, the, the Counter-Reformation. 
uh, and, and he argued, he was the very first that we can see that clearly argued that there were humans that existed before Adam. And I can find a few, uh, for example, R.A. Torrey uh, would be somebody who was the editor of the, uh, uh, the Fundamentals, uh, founder, I see Matthew back there, founder of Biola University, was you know, instrumental in the foundation of, of Moody Bible Institute. He was a gap theorist. Uh, and in his gap, uh, his version of the gap theory, he argued that all of the fossils that we have, uh, the hominid fossils that we have, these were uh, the humans that existed before the, the satanic rebellion. Uh, and so uh, you, you have, in Genesis 1, you don't have the account of, 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 of the origin, but the restoration. Uh, and you don't have the first humans in Adam and Eve. You have, really, the the reboot of the human race uh, in Tory's argument. Uh, so you, you do have a few, but I think that uh, Walton arguing this way uh, is pretty unique. Now, uh, outside of conservative circles, of course, um, most Old Testament, you know, the idea of Genesis 1 and 2, parallel, sequential, man, they see them as two different two different origin stories. So, so this is only a conversation that would be going on within evangelical circles. So they would argue that, that uh, he argues that uh, Genesis 1 speaks of the creation of humanity uh, in general. Genesis 2 speaks of Adam as an individual. Now, what he argues there is that it's not even there talking about the origin of Adam, not material origin. What he argues is, is that this is the assignment of Adam. For example, the very thing talking about uh, God forming Adam. He would say this refers only to Adam as archetype. And it said it made him out of the dust. Well, it's not talking about the material. It is speaking about his uh, uh, mortality. In fact, when it talks about he formed Adam, he would say that's better translated as prepared or ordained. Um, then when it talks about um, Eve, you say, well, what? okay, uh, then what about Eve being made out of his side? He would say, well, first, uh, the notion of Adam being put into a deep sleep, he said that's better understood as vision. In other words, that God gave Adam a vision. Uh, and then when it says Eve from his side, he said that's back. Actually, there's nothing about uh, a rib there, that it actually speaks about her being his other half, uh, and uh, so our counterpart. So what you have is not an account of material origins, but rather the call to a specific task, to be the priest in the garden or sanctuary of God, and for Adam to understand that Eve is in this role with him. So uh, you can see this is quite a unique uh, position. Uh, so like I said, Genesis 1 speaks of humanity in general, Genesis 2 speaks of a particular uh, man by the name of Adam. So what can we say about this? And I, I want to rush through this, so I'm trying to get done. First, the strengths of what Walton is doing. Well, it is comprehensive. I mean, he has presented a, a holistic approach. I mean, when he gets done, uh, you have something that's comprehensive. It is definitely learned. It is, uh, he is uh, certainly someone who knows the ancient Near Eastern uh, document. It's, it's certainly innovative. I think he is very brave to, to, to present something that, uh, you know, is, is quite groundbreaking. Uh, it affirms significant theological beliefs. In other words, he does want to, to affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. 
uh, and he also wants to uphold uh, the historicity of, uh, the, of Adam and Eve. And so I think that that's certainly an important thing. Uh, and also, let's face it, it removes significant obstacles to the current debate. In fact, I don't think it just, he doesn't just resolve the debate. He doesn't even attempt to resolve the debate. What he does is he renders it moot. In other words, what he does, in this, if, he's, if he's right, then the whole issue is a non-issue. Which is why, even though he doesn't affirm evolution, those within the evolutionary community are quite happy to own Walton. In fact, Jim Stump, who is a dear friend of mine, um, here's, here, you know, you remember Richard Dawkins saying that, that Darwin allowed uh, an atheist to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist? Well, here's what Jim has to say about Walton. He said, reading Walton's book helped me to become a biblically fulfilled evolutionary creationist. And so uh, those would be the strengths. Uh, what are the weaknesses? Well, it does abandon Adam and Eve as common ancestors. In other words, we do not have Adam and Eve as, at the headwaters of the human race. Um, like I said, federal headship, yes. Original humans, no. Um, and then second, uh, the purely functional interpretation has not convinced most other, other Old Testament scholars. I mean, it's really tough to read Genesis 1 and 2 and think it's only talking about function. And in fact, uh, I would add, you know, you have to ask the question, is de novo creation entirely absent from Genesis 1 and 2? And in this way, Walton tells us that we ought to understand how the, uh, the ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, readers would have understood it, or hearers would have understood it, but he sounds very modern here. It sounds very modern to me to have someone bifurcate between material origin and function. In other words, I would suspect that that, that kind of division would have been absent in the, the ancient Near Eastern audience. Um, and so, in fact, I, I said, well, would they have been interested only in teleology? Uh, I think that this is, in fact, I think we do need to, to recognize, I think he's very, helping us in a very important thing here. We do need to understand we are listening and reading uh, the biblical record with modern eyes, and it's very tough not to do that. You ask a modern, why does it rain? And he or she will say, well, because the sun heats the bodies of water, the water condenses, uh, uh, you know, or, or evaporates, and as the water evaporates, it condenses in the atmosphere, forms clouds, and finally, at that point, it cools enough to where it returns to the earth as rain. Uh, and if you, I mean, if you ask someone, why does it rain, they will give you uh, a, a very much a, a, a material, instrumental explanation. Whereas if you were to ask an Aristotelian, uh, he would have said, because the grass needs water. You would, have, you would have talked about the purpose of it all, the intent of the rain. And I think that even, you know, uh, Moses' original audience were not even Aristotelian. Uh, if you'd ask, you know, somebody in Moses' day, why does it rain? They would have said, because God gives us the rain. And so I think it's very difficult to come up with this clear, neat bifurcation that Walton does of separating material and functional things. Is his point essential to his argument? I really don't think so. I think he could have abandoned this point and still be able to make his case. Um, like I said, uh, not only the purely functional, the sequential interpretation hasn't convinced most other Old Testament scholars either. Collins points out that rabbinical writings 
took the activities of Genesis 2 to be an elaboration on the sixth day. More importantly for, for I think, the audience here listening to me now, in Matthew 19, Jesus seems to combine the events of Genesis 1.27 with Genesis 2.24 in a way that strongly indicates that he understood the passages to be speaking of the same creation event. So, let me conclude. There are some areas of further work. Where do we need to go from here? One, the role of ancient Near Eastern evidence in interpreting Genesis. There needs to be a real conversation about this. Um, Some who criticize Walton, uh, criticize him for allowing the A&E material to have a magisterial role uh, uh, over the Bible. I, I don't think that's quite fair, but I think it's a point worth examining. Uh, We do need to ask how accommodation fits into a robust doctrine of inerrancy. I think everyone understands that Scripture is accommodated to us. But there is a difference, uh, I mean, in understanding what that means. Uh, One example that I think that kind of illustrates this, you know, think of the the little uh, preschooler at the dinner table looking at his parents and, and saying, Mommy, Daddy, where do babies come from? And, you know, the parent will say, um, well, you know, there's a little bit of your daddy and a little bit of your mommy put inside a mommy. And as a result, uh, a baby come about who was you. Or, you know, that would be accommodating. To, uh, that would be one way of telling it. Or another way of telling it would be, well, the stork flew over uh, and, and, and dropped you off at the, at the front steps. And now we have you. Both are accommodations. One is accommodation to the limitations of the audience, and the other one is an accommodation of error. And so the question of, you know, I do think that we do have to have a robust doctrine or uh, theology of accommodation, but not one that has the idea of uh, the the Holy Spirit accommodating error. I think that's problematic. Um, So, uh, again, I think there's uh, whether or not Genesis 1 actually teaches teaches creatio ex nihilo. I think it does, but evidently there still is an ongoing discussion among uh, evangelical uh, Old Testament uh, scholars, and I'll I'll let you talk that one over. And the shadow cast by scientific discoveries over biblical interpretation. I don't think there's any evangelical that wishes to give science a magisterial role, but the discussion about the proper relationship between the natural sciences and biblical interpretation must continue. And then there are unresolved theological issues, especially the Augustinian view of original sin and its derivatives. That was already a problem long before Darwin ever showed up, and I think we still have a lot of theological work to do there. So what I want to leave with some just affirmations. One, the authority of Scripture. And here I would just want to say even evolutionary creationists recognize there's a problem here. Uh, at a Biologos meeting, Tim Keller, who is a, an evolutionary creationist, made this point. Uh, He said, I don't believe Genesis 1 can be taken literally because I don't think the author expected us to. But Paul is different. He most definitely wanted to teach us that Adam and Eve were real historical figures. When you refuse to take the biblical author literally, when he clearly wants you to do so, you have moved away from the traditional understanding of biblical authority. And so I just want to say amen 
uh, that, uh, that I think he's making an important point here. I do think that Adam and Eve, uh, it, they do, uh, they do, Adam and the fall do figure prominently in Old Testament theology much more uh, than, than inns and company want to acknowledge. Uh, as Collins says, the Old Testament as a whole seems to assume that sin is an alien intruder. It disturbs God's good creation order. And the New Testament does view Adam, the creation of Adam and the fall as historical events. And current scientific discoveries do require us to examine carefully our understanding of Genesis 1 through 11. But I would argue they are not incompatible with affirming its historicity. Thank you very much. You can ask whatever question you want, and I'll be glad to say I don't know. We'll put the mic in your hand so that this can be on the recording. I'd have a quick question for you, Dr. Sure. Keithley. Sure. Uh, you mentioned Carl Truman's statement about this being the theological issue of the day. You gave us examples of several uh, men of evangelical reputation, at least, who are denying a historical Adam. That left me with the question. Are our doctrinal parameters in our confessional context sufficient to preclude denial of historical Adam? Well, I think if you're asking me um, within the context of the Southern Baptist Convention, the Baptist faith and message, yes. Uh, because one thing, uh, it very clearly affirms inerrancy, and secondly, it affirms Adam and Eve uh, as the special creation of God. Right. Uh, there are three things, I, I point out to my students, three things that the SBC, the Baptist Face and Message 2000, uh, leaves some wiggle rooms. Eschatology, in terms of what view of the millennium, uh, you know, pre-mill, uh, pre post-mill, all-mill, that's left uh, open. Uh, how many points of Calvinism, you know, whether you're five, four, or three, um, uh, and, and the age of the earth. You know, you don't have... Uh, uh, you don't have anything in uh, the Baptist faith and message that discusses that. But you do have it where one must affirm that Adam and Eve are the special creation of God. Now, there's certain wiggle room there. But I think what we typically understand special creation to be something that de novo. You know, in other words, God has done something that cannot be explained in natural terms. That God has done something that we would describe as a miracle or a sign or a wonder. One certainly could not eliminate the historicity of Adam and Eve and still be uh, within the confines of the BF&M 2000. Okay, thank yeah. you. Thank you. I appreciate your presentation. And here in this very room, we had uh, Dr. Walton and mm -hmm. uh, Hugh Ross and Fuzz. And uh, I, uh, you know, I listened to them uh, all. And, you know, it's just my own weakness or whatever. But I, I seem more convinced by what uh, Fuzz and, and Hugh Ross were trying to do. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't, it's like you said, you know, I, I just can't buy Walton's view of the temple and, you know, and all that. And then uh, and, and you have statements in the in Genesis itself, saying that Eve was the mother of all creation. Yeah. And uh, uh, but I think that in uh, in the reedition of it hadn't been published at that time of uh, uh, Fuzrana and and Hugh Ross's name is on that book too. Yeah. Who was Adam? Yeah. Right. And uh, 
But I think that their attempts uh, to deal with the situation are, were a lot more convincing to me. And, and they do fit, I think they fit the overall idea of the historicity of Adam better. Uh, you know, and, and also some of the, uh, the things that are going on now, we just assume that everybody thinks it's okay about the evolution just from a purely scientific point of view. But there's a whole lot of backlash against evolution and about the natures of it that aren't even, don't have anything to do with the Bible. You know, the idea of just the time frames involved to, to make the kind of changes that are involved. Uh, for example, in that book, uh, Rana uh, talks about uh, the, uh, uh, the encephalization quotient and things like that of the, the brains of, of the different uh, supposed ancestors of Adam and how those were really, even though he wasn't trying to mock them or anything like that, but he pointed out how they somehow upped it about 15%, you know, to make it more like Adam. And then once they actually had more uh, accurate uh, ways of doing that, they found out that those were in error. And I think there's a whole lot of just the, the possibilities of the kind of changes that have to be made from a chimpanzee yeah, uh, I have, to, to Adam I have or so much that there's no time. There's not enough time yeah, for I that. have a lot of sympathy for the work that uh, Dr. Ross and, and Dr. Ron are doing. Uh, and full disclosure, I am a theological fellow with reasons to believe, so, so I have a great deal uh, of, of you know, affinity with what they're doing, even though I don't go where Hugh goes with his day-age understanding of Genesis 1. However, having said that, uh, the very illustration you gave about the brain size uh, that point has been challenged by certain uh, ones, uh, and again, I'm not—I am not a scientist. I'm, I'm certainly not a geneticist, uh, and so I have—I find myself reading uh, Rana's book and then the critiques of it as as someone who is a layman reading scientific work, and I just have to acknowledge that as I as I read that. Dr. Keithley, I'm wondering, do you see any significant, currently any significant mathematical challenges to the genetic tree models? I know Vern Poitras and some others yeah. are offering. Do you, do you see anything there? Yeah, uh, I think that uh, the Poitras' work um, and what he's talking about there is that Poitras argues that the, the genetic similarity uh, between chimpanzees are, are, and, and, and apes, primates, and humans are not 99%, but the numbers are much lower. Uh, and so there are those in the Biologos uh, co uh, community who have responded to Poitras. Uh, again, yes, there are some mathematical uh, challenges, and they continue. Um, here again, uh, I think that... Uh, uh, it's very easy to get deep in the weeds on uh, when we start talking about mathematical models. And, and uh, especially when we talk, you know what they say about statistics. Uh, you know, there's white lies, there's whoppers, and then there's statistics. Uh, and, 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 so, you know, and, and what's being said there, that's, that's facetious. But the point is, is that statistics are very easily misinterpreted. 
and very easily manipulated. And you have, you have to be very careful to make sure to read and both sides on that argument. And right now there is a very vigorous argument going on. Incidentally, speaking of a very vigorous argument going on right now, let me, if you want to, take a look at Biologos Dennis Venema's arguments for the genetic argument for common descent. Uh, arguing for common descent, and then Cornelius Hunter's, who's at Biola, his response. And so there is this, I mean, these are blog uh, posts ongoing, I mean, as in this week, uh, in which they are going back and forth. And if one wants to read uh, those who are, go- who are actually in that field, who can make that argument, uh, and-, and do so in a remarkably accessible way, I would encourage you to take a look. Uh, and there you get to read both sides. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Keithley. Uh, excellent uh, presentation, fascinating subject. Uh, I think Dr. Williams' point about just the empirical warrant for neo-Darwinian evolution isn't nearly as strong as many uh, would uh, would indicate uh, with their comments, uh, mm-hmm. particularly folks coming at it from a secular standpoint. So uh, we don't have to give up the farm uh, on that front. I wonder how well Walton really... Uh, follows through on the claim of being agnostic uh, to the theistic evolution simply because uh, it seems to me his innovations uh, assume that uh, theistic evolution is legitimate. Yeah, uh, I think what he would with. say, and, and, I, and I, I've, I've sat in conversations where Walton has been asked that very question, he argues and, and one just understands, you know, we, we, you know, Christian charity has to take him at his word. Uh, that he's arguing it isn't that um, uh, he's assuming that that natural selection, or excuse me, common descent is true. Therefore, I have to find uh, a a theological or, or hermeneutical paradigm that allow that. He would ar- he argues that he is dealing with the text as the text, and when he gets done, that it has nothing to say about origins. That's what he argues. 